Welcome to the Profitable Accountant Podcast. I'm your host, Reza Huda, practice owner, coach, and mentor to accounting firm owners. In this podcast, I share practical strategies to get new clients, charge higher prices, and build a profitable accounting firm that you're proud of. From time to time, I also interview other accountants doing incredible things so you can learn what's working and take tangible takeaways to implement. Make sure you press the follow button on your podcast player so you get notified when I release a new episode. Now, on to today's session. Hello, hello. I hope you're well. I've had a good start to the day. So today is another session of Accountants Live where I interview a another accountant who's doing great things. And in this session, in this podcast, I will be interviewing Julie Wilkinson of Wilkinson Accounting Solutions. Julie has an incredible story growing her firm, starting out in the pandemic in January 2020 in the space of just uh, under three years. She's gone from nothing to nearly a million pounds in revenue and 18 people. Absolutely incredible growth journey. I'm going to be talking to Julia about how she started, what she did to get a few clients and how she got such phenomenal growth in in such a short space of time. So without further ado, let's uh, get into the episode and I'll see you on the other side. So today my guest is Julie Wilkinson of Wilkinson Accounting Solutions. Hey there, Julie. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Excited to get into your story and find out what um, what you've been doing, the amazing growth that you have got so that other people can get some kind of tangible takeaways from your journey, get some motivation, inspiration as to what is possible. So kick us off, Julie, with a bit of background on you. How did you get started with your own accounting firm? Fire away. Yes, so I am a chartered management accountant by trade. Um, I came from corporate, so I've been I work I've been working in finance for over twenty years. I started life as sort of a purchase ledger clerk and worked my way up. So I didn't go to university. I studied through uh, my jobs, and um, I suppose it's a little bit unusual, maybe, for someone to start a practice that hasn't worked in a practice because I didn't have a practice background. But the reason I started it was because. My last job, I worked for a 250 million group retail company and they had done some acquisitions. And one of my roles in that company was to help integrate sort of three entities into the group. So I did that project. But one of those entities was, I suppose, what you'd call an SME business. It was a family run business. And when I went into that business, it was, well, let's just say quite poorly ran. And over the course of the time of doing that entity, I realized I started to think to myself, well, if this businesses struggling and they're backed by this big equity firm then what does the average business do so I asked 20 businesses what their accountants did um, and 100% only saw their accounts once a year mm-hmm. and this was businesses I did I did a variety I mean I'd see I've only ever worked I never really worked for smaller businesses I only ever worked for large businesses and I'm not always saying corporate businesses are run well but what they do have a structure so they do have a reporting cycle they do have a structure so I was quite surprised to see these firms because I asked firms between sort of 50,000 and about 20 million. So I was really surprised to see such big firms. So I then went out to accountants and I asked a few, you know, what they offered. And I was told nobody values management accounts. You can't sell it. A lot of firms have tried to sell management accounts, but they couldn't. And what became quite clear to me was the background of a lot of people running practices. I had, I seemed to have an experience, some form of skill set that a lot of people didn't have because you can't really teach experience. You know, you can't teach 20 years in working in big corporate commercial firms. 
So I realized I had a bit of a skill set, maybe that other people, I didn't know how to sell it at first, but that's what I knew. So anyway, so that was the start of orchestras. That's why I started it, um, was because I saw I had a bit of a skill set, a bit of a gap in the market of people not really getting management accounts. Uh, okay. So yeah. All right. So let, let me stop you right there because management accounts in themselves don't sell. It's, it's what the management accounts can do for you, can do for a business owner that helps them to make better business decisions, right? So how did you go about getting your first few clients? Because presumably, you, you know, your, your taxi drivers and your, you know, your small sole traders aren't going to value management accounts anyway. So how did you go about finding those initial clients that will benefit from the years of experience that you had in corporate and industry to add value to their lives? Well, the truth is a little while, to be honest. So one thing I always did was I was always quite strict with myself. So I always knew I didn't want to be a practice that just had hundreds of accounts myself processing and getting. So although I did take on some sort of smaller bookkeeping, one thing I always did was outsource things right from the start. So I always had outsource, even though arguably I could have done it myself. I didn't want to. So I was always quite strict with what I took on in terms of sort of smaller clients to give myself the autonomy and the ability to be able to find bigger clients. I suppose what I did, my starting point was when I first left my job, I contracted um, as an FD initially. That would that so that was in 2019 because I was originally going to do all this in 19, but as it happened, I ended up working for the whole year. When it got to Jan 20, or just before Jan 20, I, I thought to myself, I've got to stop this because I'm not really achieving anything. I've got to start doing it. So obviously, I left and started this all in Jan 20 just before COVID. Anyway, when COVID happened, I thought, well, I've done it now. I've just got to get on with it. So I found what I did. The first thing I did was I um, I still took on some contract, what I would probably call contracting clients, but I changed the way I did it. So the first change I did was rather than swapping my myself for day rates, I did more project-based. So I sort of charged a fee where I probably made a bit more per day than average. I was charging by the day rate as a consultancy because that allowed me still to test the waters of um that still allowed me to test the waters of you know what i needed in terms of the clients but then still get the big the big clients so i only worked with a couple and then obviously now we specialize in MA. and how i got into MA was my um i i did some cfo work and there was a broker and the long and short of it was i consulted for a couple of broker firms to do to uh to help them because they were really impressed with the information I'd be able to get. And then mm -hmm. eventually I decided to launch MA myself. So what I did was I slowly took on small amounts of clients to see who I wanted to work with. And trust me, I had some <laughs> quite bad clients as well as good clients. But then over time, built my own organic strategy. Because when I first started, I didn't have any social media presence. I, I spent about 15,000 in the first year on sort of professional development, sales coaching, my own journey to like build myself up to know who I wanted to work with. Um, so yeah, that's probably like the background of how it started really. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So Jan 2020, you're still kind of, um, contracting, but you're starting to, to bring in those smaller clients. Now where presumably you're doing everything for them, but to make sure that you weren't inundated and working crazy hours doing small tax returns and accounts, you outsource that. So how did you outsource that? Did you outsource that, uh, uh, locally in the UK or uh, offshore outsourcing? Uh, what uh, what kind of, which avenue did you use to outsource that work? Yeah, back then it was just in the UK. So like freelance bookkeepers or accountants. Right. And then it was probably in 
uh when did I get to be honest around mid 21 I actually hired my first staff member anyway I actually hired someone internally in the end because we ended up having a couple of bigger contracts and I needed someone internally um I mean we still use freelance bookkeepers today and we do actually we do actually have partnerships offshore now um because <laughs> obviously we have a lot more staff and a lot more clients but back then I had it was like UK freelancers and uh and then a one staff member at that point okay Fantastic. So yeah, just kind of stepping back to, you know, your, your contracting. So that's how you were getting the bigger FD type jobs. So did they, so did you kind of find those through agencies, presumably use an agency initially to get those contract roles? So did you find then your FD type clients through the same route? Or did you use different means to find them directly cutting out the middleman? How did you go about finding those meaty clients that did value your role as a as a kind of a virtual FD or CFO? Uh, no, I never used an agency actually. So my first FD role was just through people I knew because of the jobs I'd done. I knew a lot of like quite strategic directors and things sort of locally in London. So some of them just approached me. Mm-hmm. Once I then started finding the sort of more consultancy FD clients, I suppose a little bit of luck and a little bit of pushing myself to go say, I got a couple from networking, some through the website, some through some referrals for people I knew. Um, but I, at first, I only worked for sort of one at once or maximum of two because it was just me. The idea was to build a portfolio of CFOs. So now we actually have seven CFOs that work with us. I've got one employed CFO and the rest are freelancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that sort of what, what I realized was the, the clientele. So that's one of the reasons we moved into M&A because um, now we specialize in acquisition. So although we do act as CFOs, we do specialize within the acquisition and exit planning rather than sort of more just 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 ad hoc CFOs. You know, we don't tend to just put someone in for three days on an ongoing basis, like maybe like someone like the FD Center does. We tend to work on projects for people and do a lot of consultancy and then get a longer term retainer off the back of it when they're looking on their growth strategies. Okay, so talk to me about exactly what does that look like? You say you specialize in mergers and acquisitions on a project basis. So, you know, practically and tangibly, what does that look like in terms of how does that manifest itself in the terms of the work that you do? Is it a case of, right, okay, well, you are there is a company that is wanting to exit in a year, two years time, and you work closely with them to get them exit ready? Is it that type of arrangement or is it something else? Well, a bit of both. So basically, we work to, we work as acquisition CFOs for buyers. So people who are buying businesses, that's one of our client routes market. Um, they might have an exit strategy in the end. So they're doing a buy and build, but um, and then exit. But we, we go in with the buyer. So they'll have a deal that they want to buy. And we'll go in and help them with the due diligence, the valuations, and basically become their acquisition CFO. We then stay on. We then have post-acquisition services that we do. So once once they've closed the deal, we then help them implement a financial strategy. So we build the financial infrastructure that they need. And most of those businesses are doing more than one deal. So what we eventually do is we become in partnership with them and work on multiple deals. So likely we'll say right, we'll have a three to five year partnership where we help them on deals. And as they get to a certain number of deals, we'll help them put the governance and controls in and they'll start maybe recruiting some form of finance team in house as we go along that journey. Um, so that's what we kind of look for. I mean, we do work with some people that are just doing sort of one-off deals, but a lot of people we work with are doing more than one deal. So mm. therefore, that's how we build a longer-term partnership with them. Okay, fantastic. No, it's excellent that you've managed to get kind of position yourself in this 
in this market, which obviously values your experience having worked in an industry and corporate and the experience that you can bring. So tell me more about how did you, so was it just, you just mentioned a bit of luck and kind of who you know, you know, getting a strategic partner. Was it, did, it, did it kind of spawn off you meeting strategic partners that then introduced you to these type of companies or what else have you done in terms of your marketing to get in front of your ideal client being those, you know, um, uh, kind of an acquisition for, for buyers? How did you get into that market? Uh, well, now I do loads, but when I when I decided to go, so basically what happened was when I was doing the contracting for acquisitions, I realised actually I can do this, so I just decided to go and do it. So I think, although I say it's a little bit, I think my mindset and I just pushed to go and do it. I wasn't scared. I just started to build the packages and I started doing it myself. And I basically recruited quite a lot of people on the basis that I felt like I was going to get the right words. Obviously, I took a bit of risk. Um and that was when I recruited my group CFOs internal. Um, and first of all, I just went to a few networkings and just met some people. And uh, I don't know, maybe I've just got a good instinct of people that I'm good. I, I don't, you know, I don't go to a lot of networkings. It's not like I go to networkings every day. I kind of pick strategically where I thought I would just meet the people. And as it happened, I did. I then got introduced. We did good jobs and I was just getting constantly introduced to more people. Now, what was happening, everyone was saying, oh, we've never seen someone like you guys before, because I think we're quite unique in terms of you get sort of corporate finance and you get accountants. And what we get told is corporate finance don't really tend to do any accountancy. So no post, but accountants don't always have the skill set for the corporate finance. I suppose we do both. So that's where our sort of skill set comes in and our USP. And that's why we've been so popular. And we were getting brokers were approaching us and going, oh my God, we haven't seen anyone like you before. Can we introduce? So now we get so many referrals through prior past clients and brokers because they've been impressed with what we've done. And obviously that's expanded my network. And then I was really clear. So I it took it did take me 18 months probably on LinkedIn because I decided to change my whole marketing strategy and then I just stuck to it. And now I probably get about 10 messages a week on LinkedIn from people saying, oh, will you help me with my acquisition? And then over that period, you know, our SEO is all focused on it. So I launched an SEO last year on TikTok. And then this year I've launched a podcast. I've got my own podcast, The Build Nexit. Uh, we actually just reached 1,000 downloads. We already had it 13 weeks. We just reached 1,000 downloads today. Um, so now I do a lot more socials, uh, but obviously when I started, I was only really on LinkedIn um, and I've invested the money and the time and the people to like launch in different socials. Mm. Amazing. That's fantastic. Well done you. What, so what are your, um, what are your average fees, would you say, for clients that you help on a, on a retainer basis? Uh, well, on acquisitions, nothing less than 10 grand. So anywhere between 10 and 25 grand a deal, depending on the size, we'd work anywhere between sort of a 1 million turnover to up to about a 20 million. Mm -hmm. I mean, because of our background, we have been asked to work on bigger deals because all of our CFOs are all corporate. So like my group CFO um, worked in a big corporate and all of our CFOs have worked on deals. So some were part of like the Argus Sainsbury's merger and things like that. Um, right. So because of our background, we have been asked to do sort of 200 million groups deals. But for us, we have to be careful because it's what's what's the risk worth because of the insurance. So, mm -hmm. you know, we do and, and we work internationally. I think we're working with about 11 countries now because we've got a lot mm -hmm. of people coming into the UK. Uh, we usually, I would say, working on somewhere between sort of three to five client deals every month. So that will either be any part of the acquisition, either someone that is an organic that's looking to exit or it could be we do go in if 
even if we haven't been involved on a deal, sometimes people have like messy accounts afterwards. So for instance, we've just come off a project that was six months where we put like five people in to tidy up like a, a company because it got into a bit of a mess. Okay. So that's 10 to 25K for the project. That will just be the, yeah, that's just the acquisitions. Yeah. The other stuff is just, I, I don't know, it's, it's quite bespoke because we do a lot of different things. So it'll either be a set project price or, um, but that they're sort of our due diligence fees. Yeah. And so when you are asked or when you kind of get in and provide that CFO or virtual FD type service to clients, what are your typical kind of monthly fees on that to retain the fees? Well, it can be anything from about, you know, because we do work, we do have a tax and bookkeeping team. So sometimes if we're, if we're going with quite ambitious growth people, it might start off where we're just doing sort of the bookkeeping and then pro, and then transition into something more. I mean, I don't know. I'd say it can be anything from, well, it'd be a minimum £1,000 a month, but it could be anywhere, I suppose, up to somewhere between ten and 15000 a month. Mm-hmm. depending on how much we were doing the size of the company the number of people that were working on the account yeah fantastic great so you still have um you still have kind of a mixed bag of clients and you have some clients where you would do the usual accounts tax bookkeeping that stuff as well as the more uh, kind of uh, lucrative and, and sexy kind of acquisition type stuff yeah, well, that's the so we've just done an acquisition ourselves. We've just bought 100 clients off a retiring firm. Well, I say just, we did it this year in 23 mm-hmm. earlier in the year. Um, at my strategy is we buy retainer clients, we organically grow consultancy. And the right. reason we obviously want the retainers is because they're more guaranteed and it's a bit more secure because there is always risk in the consultancy, especially in the growth phase we're in, because obviously. You know, it is hit and miss with the cash flow and getting, and you know, deals closing, getting the clients on board. Um, but now we've got like nine employed staff and then we've got, like I say, seven freelance CFOs. And we also do have the offshore partner that we work with now that have, we have a set amount with. And we do have some freelance bookkeepers here as well locally. Hmm. Okay. So. All right. Let's, let's move on to talk about the, you know, your team, your team structure. You've only been going three years or so, just over three years, and you're up to, you know, 18 odd people already. So how did you go about, you know, what was your recruitment strategy? Where did you find your people? And what structure did you come up with based on, you know, what you had going? So talk to me, talk us through a little bit about your, your people, your team. Yeah, well, it's gone quite quick, really, because I suppose the team really has only been built significantly in the last sort of 15 months. So probably, like I say, around May, t- well, sort of early 22, I only had one staff. Now we've got nine employed and then the freelancers have grown along the way. So the structure was um, I. The long and short of it was I took the plunge. So I had a free I had a um, like an employed sort of finance assistant. And because of all the M&A work, I just took the plunge and hired my own internal group CFO. So that was the first plunge I took because I was like, if I don't, because at the end of the day, I, my aim is not to work in the business. I probably don't, I don't really work in it that much. I've, it's been quite a bit because of the acquisition. So I needed that role because he's our group CFO. So he then oversees all the consultancy. So, and the other CFO. So that allowed me to step away. So I don't really do anything on the consultancy side. I suppose that was a bit of a risk because I was really early in the acquisition journey. I didn't know, but I had, well, I had my forecast and my gut instinct. And as it happens, it's panned out really well. So that's been good. And then he then obviously has a lot of decision making within the business. So he's gone out and recruited some people himself. So we built the team up 
because off the back of the acquisitions, we then got a lot of bookkeeping and tax work. And then we were doing our own acquisition. The reason I left it a little while before I did my own acquisition is because I couldn't do it until I had the group CFO. So the group CFO came on board around June last year. And that was when we found the first acquisition. And then obviously we had to go through the funding. It's always hardest to do the first one. Um, so yeah, so then we st- we found the first one around June. Um, and to be honest, we could have closed it at the end of last year, but because of where they were, and I I was I went on holiday for a month in January. They asked to close it this year after all the tax season finished. So that's why we left it and did yeah. it this year. Fantastic, excellent. All right. So talking about the acquisition, then, how did you how did you go about finding that? Did it come? Did you kind of go out looking for it, prospecting, or did it come on your desk through a broker? Yeah, it came through a broker because obviously I'm connected to a lot of brokers and I suppose intermediaries that help connect buyer and seller. So it came through a broker. I mean, we this one's been a really good acquisition to trial because essentially it was a retiring company. Um, and we wanted to trial what happened if we took what you'd call old-fashioned accounts and modernised them into 21st century. And as it happens, we've done really well. I mean, we've had a 100% success rate of converting people to QuickBooks. So this was to the point of really old-fashioned. So, well, I call it old-fashioned might be a bit harsh, but what I mean by old-fashioned is it was still paper-based. So they were still Mm. using the Excel spreadsheets, manual T accounts. The receipts were being... they were actually driving and picking up the receipts sitting down with them having coffee going through the accounts and obviously um that's not real life is it anymore you know with with where we are on the 21st so that it's been a challenge because it's you know it has been a lot like they they had a really good relationship with the clients so first of all it was how do we transfer that relationship but also how do we not have to go and drive and pick up receipts and but as it happens you know like i say we've had a really good success rate of you know, explaining to people the importance of the systems and sort of, I think, delivering probably, you know, a more advanced service by, you know, it's not just now re-logging the bank statements every year, it's actually how they can utilise the information. So some of them are bigger and might warrant some exit planning and management accounts, some of them are smaller and don't, but either way, everyone still wants to see their accounts more often, small or big. And you can do smaller forms of management accounts for smaller companies doesn't have to be a complicated ball pack you know it's just how do you see your information and understand where your business is and my experience is all size businesses want that regardless of like their size it's just they're they're just less complex (laughs) Mm, absolutely fantastic so what, what are some of the things you'd say to others with regards to your experience of buying a practice what should they what should they watch out for what are some of their you know, some of the, the the frustrations or challenges or obstacles you've had in the process that you managed to then over overcome to, to give some pointers to others listening and thinking about growth through acquisition. Yeah, well, obviously, because we do it for a lot. I mean, we've actually done uh, DD for people buying accounting firms as well, funnily enough. And obviously, we do a lot. So I mean, there's a, quite a few things to consider is um why you're buying it first of all I suppose that's probably one of the most important things that like why you do it I mean me personally after doing acquisitions I would never grow something organically again that's just what I've learned I didn't think about acquisitions when I started until I got into it um and then you know what type do you want to buy how many staff does it have what size basically I think it's harder to buy smaller firms than it is bigger firms we did a smaller firm because it was a trial for us because because of how much work it's been to transfer them we wanted to test it but I think it's 
you know, it is harder to buy the smaller firms. How owner operated is it? Who manages the clients? Um, who, who are the staff? Are they good? You know, are you trying? I mean, we did an asset sale, not a share sale. So we just bought the assets. We didn't buy the shares, which is actually typically a harder acquisition because when you buy the shares, you keep the name. When you don't, when you buy the assets, they transfer into your company. So not only do we have to transfer the clients from there, the clients to it was a big change because they were actually they they actually knew. Oh my god, it's not Arch anymore. It's Wilkinsons. You know, our our, our acquisition. Mm. Um, so that was harder. But buying the shares can be easier because you can keep the name. And and actually, the customers might not know too much because the same people are managing it. Yeah, yeah. And what's um, in your view? What is a so what kind of what kind of size was it? So when you say small versus big, in your mind, what's the what's the differentiation? What's a small firm? What's a big small firm? is under half a million. So ours was about three hundred k of okay. sales. So, so I would say small's under half a million, big's anything over half a million. Although I would say typically, oper- businesses operating under a million in general are more a lot more owner operated, meaning the owner works in it. They're always harder. Yeah, because normally the owner is the person in the end servicing the clients by some form. They might have a team that produces it, but it's it's why it's why is the clients with them? Is it their brand? Like, is it actually a company or is it just because they like the owners? I mean, you know, our one was quite owner operated. It was because they liked the the owners. We've been quite successful in transferring that relationship across. Um, but it's hard. It's hard work. Whereas obviously, if you buy one more established, where I suppose you've got client teams actually working on the clients, and the owners have no involvement, it's a lot easier as the buyer because it's already already ran itself. Mm. But what I find quite interesting is I've never actually met an accounting firm that has management accounts for their own practice. So <laughs> ne- I've never once seen an accounting firm management accounts. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of accounting firms say they're delivering financial information for clients, but if you're not even doing it yourself, how can you deliver that for clients? Absolutely, not practicing so, what you're preaching. And I haven't, and I haven't ever seen one that can give a management accounts. Shocking, isn't it? So, uh, so what? Um, how did you manage that transition so that because if it was fairly owner operated, how did you? Uh, how did you transition those relationships? Because presumably you didn't want to get stuck in. You didn't want to go and see however many hundreds of clients that you were buying to get stuck into to, to doing that. How did you manage that transition to take it from being owner-operated to now then dealing with people in your team? What are some things that you did? Well, the truth is I have had to get involved, which is probably the bit of work I did. I tried to recruit someone to help us, and the fact is it didn't work out. So it put me in a bit of a sticky situation. So I have. However, when you say go and see them, one thing we've managed to do is transition the clients enough not to have to go and see them in person. They're happy for us to to do it remotely. We've kind of explained the way we work. And actually, with technology the way it is, it doesn't really cause a problem. So there's been a couple of them. I've I've had no problems. And most of them I am talking to, but we're trying to align it to... Um, sort of when we're doing the year ends and things like that so we're aligning it but but also though the team's building their own relationship because that was one that's kind of one of the things you know we give them more autonomy to the staff so we did transfer transfer over a couple of staff members and obviously we had our own staff and you know there are there are areas of it that I don't get involved with for instance we have a payroll manager you know so I've never been involved in any of the payroll discussions she manages all of the payroll as we're upselling quick you know sort of upskilling the um the companies getting them onto quickbooks i don't do any of the bookkeeper or anything like that the only thing i've kind of done is help 
maintain the transfer and that relationship and sort of explaining how we work. Um, but, you know, if they need additional consultancy and things, they are going then to our CFO. So I'm not managing all of it, but I suppose it has been quite a lot of work for me. Yeah. Um, because I tried to recruit someone and it didn't work out for that particular one. So. Sure. And what are you finding when it comes to valuation multiples? What are you finding is a, is a good price for an accounting firm? Are you, st- is it, are you still seeing its multiples of uh, gross recurring fees? One, mm-hmm. one times, 1.2 times, or are you finding more and more asking for a multiple of, uh, of EBITDA? What, uh, what are you seeing? No, the EBIT, multiples of EBITDA only tends to happen if the profit's above 1.5 mil. Uh, if it's lower than that, normally it's a multiple of revenue. Um, well, ab- industry average is somewhere between 0.75 and 1.5 times recurring revenue. I think it depends what you're going for, because it's also the funding. The fact is, if you don't have the funding in place, it's hard to get a look in for businesses over one mil. They're more sought after. And to be honest, bigger players are going for those bigger deals. So unless you can, so, you know, you kind of get laughed out the room a little bit because you go and speak to them, like, have you got the funding? You say no you're probably never going to get a look in. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg. You've got to try and somehow have get secure funding so that you can get in if you want to go for big ones, I think, to get in. Or that's my experience of those discussions. Obviously, it's easier on the smaller ones because they're not quite as established and you can get a bit of a better deal sometimes on them because if they're owner-operated, you know, you can look at how you pay it and the deferrals. Um, but, you know, the fact is I would be willing to pay a little bit more and that was ran well that had the client team on the basis that you know i'm i'm getting something that's a lot more streamlined if it's if it's not running independently to be honest i'd want to be paying less because i know it's a lot more work and cost for me yeah but that doesn't mean i wouldn't that doesn't mean i wouldn't go for smaller ones i mean we are still going to look for some smaller ones some bolt on because you know at the end of the day i just think we've got a lot to offer and what i'm finding with sort of older practices with like tax digital coming in is they just don't want the hassle you know they 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 want their client you know they love they like their clients and they want the clients to be looked after and they know that so i suppose more current firms are able to give the clients a little bit more i suppose in terms of transitioning onto systems having more real-time information Mm. um and it's gone really well for us with the acquisition that we've done so far fantastic and were you able to kind of do some self uh, um self self finance in terms of repaying the owner through the profits generated or was there a big down payment you know typically you know what kind of uh what kind of movements are there in in that space at the moment that you're seeing? Well, I would say, well, this is where it depends how bad you want it. I think if you're going to go for a pretty big company, a, a bigger company, you're going to be looking at a higher down payment. I got a pretty good deal on mine because it was quite owner operating. There was a lot of work and I had a good relationship with the sellers and, you know, they were happy, you know, we're happy with what we agreed. But I think when you're going for bigger ones, it's likely they're going to want at least 50% down payment if, if not a bit more. Now, the problem is, um, if you, I think the problem will be, if you do offer, I'm not saying you won't get a lower deal, but you've got to think who else is in the running. You know, if somebody else comes in and offers 60% and you're trying to only offer 20, you're probably not going to get it. So you've got to be able to offer them something different, you know, because it's not all about the money. I think sometimes people do look for who you are and who you can service, you know, if you've got, if you, because like the one I bought, for instance, we were quite ethically the same, like the way they, they behaved and things like that. I liked it. 
you know, I'm not saying, so it's, it's also about who you connect with the thing. So there isn't, I'm not saying you couldn't get it if you offered a low amount, but the fact is you've got to be able to come to the table and explain why. Um, yeah. And funding is a big part of it. So, you know, and it depends who you're in the running against. You know, if someone's offering 60 and you're offering 30, why would they give it to you? Unless there's something you can really bring to the table from it. Mm, absolutely. So, yeah, there's definitely more buyers out there than sellers. So you've got to have a an attractive uh, proposition for anyone selling up. Uh, a couple of questions coming through for you, Julie. So what, um, what was the size of your firm when you acquired your first fee bank? uh around 300k turnover okay so you basically then doubled overnight through the acquisition yeah we haven't yet because obviously we've only just bought it but we'll see it will sure. materialize in the next 12 months yeah and did you have kind of the standard clauses in there to say if you know if any clients leave in the first 12 months there's some clawback mm-hmm. yeah yeah cool okay rayon's asking why do you prefer growth through acquisition rather than organic i guess because organic's hard work. <laughs> Maybe not for everyone. I don't know. I mean, I did quite well in my organic, you know, my my LinkedIn and stuff. I, I don't pay a lot for marketing. I spent a lot of money building an organic strategy. I think it's hard work growing by growing organic, you know, constantly trying. And the fact is, it depends how big you want to grow. It's very difficult. Up to about nine people is easier. Most people, if you want to get bigger than that, it's difficult to do it about an acquisition. There's too much risk. There's too much risk involved if you're trying to grow organically past sort of half a mil, I personally think. Because um, obviously you're relying on people, you know, can, are people going to leave? Are you going to have the cash flow buying and gives you a lot more opportunity for, I suppose, ongoing cash? Mm, absolutely. I guess it all depends on your objectives, what you want to grow, what you want to um, build. Really. I know you've got uh, quite ambitious plans haven't you julie so what what is your big plan what do you want to kind of grow to and i guess that is the reason why you are trying to grow in the fastest way possible and presumably reinvesting all profits into um yeah into more and more acquisitions to to scale yeah well my ultimate aim is basically me become i suppose a silent investor in my own company i don't want to work in it i'd probably say i'm 50 percent there it'd be silly for me to sit here and say i don't do anything in the business i don't think you can do that when you grow organically in this short period of time but that's my growth so we're currently going through a funding round at the minute to get our next bank of funding to do our next acquisitions um but i do quite a lot personally so i invest in property i have a network of um acquirer so i do like i'm involved in quite a lot of discussions on acquisitions outside of wilkinson's as well just because of what i do and who i know i am actually launching my own pr now so i do a lot of i've obviously got my podcast and i'm moving into professional speaking and we are will be doing some master classes soon on um sort of acquisitions and PLs and balance sheets and things um so yeah i've got a lot going on personally for myself so we'll i love i love wilkinson's it will carry on growing Will I be running it all? Probably not forever, because that's not my my ambition is it runs on its own. I, I don't really believe, because this is how, I mean, we help people exit. You can't fully exit at maximum value if, if as the owner, you still do a lot of the work. The business has to run, has to become an asset, because a buyer doesn't want to buy a job. They want to buy an asset. Definitely. Now, the fact is, you might have to buy a job to transform it into an asset, and that's fine. You know, some, you might choose to take, like we did, we've chosen to take on one that's hard work. And um, we were trying testing the waters. You've got to make decisions on what you want. But mm, absolutely. So, what what is the number? I think you mentioned five million to me at some point. Is that still the number you're going to get to before you decide to do your exit? And and uh, what's the time frame for that? 
Well, between three to five, I haven't really decided. I I think realistically, if we do if we do another three acquisitions in the next twelve to eighteen months, we could easily get to over three mil turnover. I've then got to decide when I want to exit. I don't know. I mean, you've got to remember when you're getting loans to buy these businesses, I suppose theoretically in the in the early stages, it's not worth quite as much because you've still got the deferred consideration of the risk. But then you decide what payout you're willing to take at the end of the day. You know, if I could stay on for three more years um, and work in it and then get it full or I could choose to exit earlier and just take a longer payout on the basis that someone might say, well, I don't want to pay you all until I know, you know, these these actually do transition and your strategies come off. I've, you know, I have to make that. Um, I would have to make that decision myself. So. Brilliant. Uh, a couple of questions. How long did it take you to grow to 300K before your first acquisition? I guess that was probably only, what, two years, was it? Yeah, year two was at 300K, yeah. Okay. And and that was just through your existing network, mainly through your um, your consultancy, FD type consultancy, was it? Yeah, that was just all through our organic growth clients. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. And one from Christian: Are you an accountant by qualification, or yeah. was your experience in M and A helped you to be where you are now? So you're a SEMA accountant, aren't you? Said. Yeah, I'm chartered management accountant. Yeah, I've been chartered for over ten years. Um, and then obviously, my, I mean, obviously my experience in M&A helped. Like I said, I didn't work in M&A specifically in corporate. I got involved in some, I wasn't ever involved in an, an actual acquisition in my corporate world, but I did obviously go into some of the ones I'd bought into the SME companies and integrate it into the group. But I think just my background generally commercially gave me a massive you know, because I've basically worked in every role there is in finance, in a, in, a, in different corporate companies. I've worked with every part of the supply chain, every director in a company. You know, I've worked in companies that get cash flows and, you know, equity back funders, board packs, presentations. So I suppose I had a whole background of, I've done system implementations. Um, and when I speak to people in practice, so I suppose my I wasn't really siloed to practice. So some people that work in practice might leave and steal a load of clients or whatever and then set up their own practice. But maybe they're a little bit siloed in the niche. I wasn't siloed in my niche because I'd obviously worked in every area, including, you know, financial accounts. So although I may not have worked with the only experience I didn't have when I left was I hadn't worked with hundreds of small clients, you know, producing tax returns. But I just went myself. I went off and just did a upgraded course. So I just did a tax comp and financial statement refresher. I did have a 15 module refresher just to remind myself, because obviously I'd studied some of it in, you know, let's face it, filling out the tax returns easy anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. No, that's been very, very helpful. I'm sure the audience have got lots of value from it, from hearing about uh, Julie's uh, journey in terms of how she's got to where she's got to in such a short space of time. For which we'll run out of time. Hopefully, uh, yeah, if you're listening to this on replay, put your questions and comments into the below section. Tag Julie and if she's got a chance and has some time, then hopefully she'll come back to you. But as Julie said, you know, the, the value lies in us helping clients in the real time, you know, tax returns and accounts, as you said, they're that simple, you know, they're not really valuable to clients. And as the, the reason why Julie's been so successful is she's gone in right at the top where the real value lies, providing that virtual CFO FD, FD type input, found her niche in terms of doing their M&A activity, the getting the uh, businesses ready for sale and helping them afterwards. So lots of learnings from that. Thank you very much, Julie, for spending the time with me today.
and sharing your journey and experiences. It's much appreciated. And if uh, for those of you listening, hope you got value from it. If you want to catch up on the previous episodes of Accountants Live, go and check out my podcast, Profitable Accountant Podcast. Otherwise, take care and I'll speak to you very soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. If you want to spend more time together, get access to me personally for your questions, access to resources and training that will help you to shortcut your progress together with being part of an incredible community of accountants or helping each other, then come and join the pack, the Profitable Accountants Community. There's a hundred plus accountants that I mentor and they help each other to get results faster than trying to do it alone. Go to reshooter.com forward slash mentoring to learn more or message me directly on LinkedIn. Take care.